Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Well, fancy seeing you here again. This is Luke Jones. I'm still in for Matt Chorley because Matt Chorley is still on holiday. Um, I don't know, topping up his tans, spending his tour millions. Who knows? I don't like to pry. Anyway, there is loads in store uh, while he's away. Uh, today, uh, we're going to do uh, Disunited Kingdom, as Matt normally does on a Wednesday. We'll take you uh, around the four corners of the UK and hear, well, their reactions to Partygate and also other news happening on those journalists patch as well. Uh, first, though, we'll get to our columnists this morning, Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton from The Times. Alice, what did you make of the apologies last night? Well, my problem is that I think Rishi's almost as bad, Matt, Rishi Sunak, as, as the Prime Minister, because I found the idea that you'd agonise over whether to stay or go. I mean, either you think you've done something wrong and you feel that morally it was the the right thing to do to go, or you don't. You don't wait and see what the reaction is mm-hmm. and then decide whether or not you've still got enough backing. So, And in some ways, I think he's now been pulled down to Boris Johnson's level. And I think that's the problem with Boris, is that once one person starts lying, everyone <laughs> sort of becomes more like him. And I think now they're all copying him. And I think all the backbench Tory MPs as well as the cabinet now sound worse and worse. I think they, I mean, I think they will have a huge payback in the polls because you just can't believe that they'll all be so sycophantic to him. And they just lie on his on his behalf. So the line just dropped out then, I think. Robert? Yeah, I think Alice is right. I think there's going to be a payback uh, if they... I mean, they're going to stay, aren't they? Uh, and then... But people have got long memories. Uh, just thinking about the, ni- the 1945 election when, you know, it was like, thanks for winning the war, Mr Churchill, and then they, they voted mm-hmm. him out because people remember the Depression from 10 years earlier. And I think the public will punish the government for this. Uh, your, your tweets and... Uh, uh, emails that demonstrate the extent of people's anger. I've seen that myself from people who are called loyal Tory voters. They're not going to forget this. Uh, and yet, Alice, we've seen polling, um, snap polling overnight from YouGov, and we'll hear from this a little bit later from YouGov, actually, later on the programme, about what people think of the Prime Minister's response to this and whether they think he lied and whether they think what he did was a bad thing. And yet, a sort of point I was making to Chris Bryant a moment ago, the state of the party polls are still broadly neck and neck. Hasn't it been the case for ages that people think Boris Johnson doesn't tell the truth, but actually when they're put in a general election, they think, oh, actually, I'd rather have you in charge than Keir Starmer? 
Well, it may not be Keir Starmer. They know they've got the Tories for a bit longer, so mm. there's not going to be a general election mm. yet. So actually what they're thinking is, I'd prefer to have you than Liz Truss, or <laughs> I'd prefer to have you than Pretty Patel. And you know, there isn't much other option. So I think they will probably wait until election now. That That's the difficulty. And Keir Starmer isn't utterly brilliant, and he isn't you know, the best Labour leader they could have. But I think it's more that they, they know it's unlikely to tip this into a general election. You're more likely to have the mm. Tories kind of tottering on till the end. So they might as well just keep, you know, mm. So and, not even the now, best of a bad bunch, know, but one of a bad bunch. And now they know it's not going to be, they're not going to get Rishi Sunak either. Whereas a few months ago, you know, he was the most popular member of the cabinet and spending money and, you know, a free spending chancellor, everybody loved him. And he's now had this absolutely calamitous fall from grace. And, and, and I think what Alice said is true. It looked, I mean, it looked like he was making a tactical consideration yesterday, hence the delay, because mm. there are some circumstances in which you could say, well, it's a pretty good idea for him to resign. And, uh, you know, let, allow everyone to forget the tax thing, look honourable and maybe come back in a year or so, uh, having had a nice you know, time in Santa Monica. But he was he obviously decided that it, it, on balance uh, he would be seen as being yeah. disloyal and trying to provoke Boris's resignation by resigning himself. So he didn't. And yet, Alice, it, it, when we sort of take a step back and actually look at what the Prime Minister and the Chancellor have been, um, have been fined for, do you not think that it would be sort of rather ludicrous if if the Prime Minister and the Chancellor left mm-hmm. office because for nine minutes they were around a table and somebody brought a cake out and people said, oh, happy birthday, and then they cracked on with their meeting? So first of all, we don't know it's nine minutes and we don't have to believe everything mm-hmm. that, that number 10 say because actually, you know, it, that that's only one version of the events. There's so many versions of events now. We don't actually really know what happened. Then, you know, he is in his 50s. He doesn't need a birthday cake in the middle of the day. On the <laughs> and I never get a birthday cake at work. You know, no. no one does. It's kind of... And, and I know it nearly died, but then so many people had. Then, you know, my mother did die in the middle of the pandemic, so I have a slightly different view maybe from other people. But I feel that now I do feel like I've been made a fool of. I do feel like, why did I stick to all the rules? We weren't there. We couldn't see her. No one was at her deathbed. You know, and I almost don't think about it now. I've almost distanced myself so much that I won't let myself care as much. But every time Partygate comes up, it does bring it all back. And you mm. think, God, we were just ridiculous doing it. But we did follow the rules because in good faith we believed that was the right thing to do and it's almost worse when you feel that Boris Johnson made up the rules and then you know not just can't be bothered mm. to stick to them but pretends that he can't even remember what they were I mean that's yeah that's the point it could look I mean on the face it might look disproportionate but it was a uh, this is only one party he's actually been investigated for four or five others so there could be more and it is the principle of the thing it's the, it's the uh, it's not the the so much the nature of the offence it's the fact that the 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 guy who makes the law can't break the law yeah. and uh we you know we if 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 they he's going to get away with this and it looks like he might do at the moment although we you know with further revelations parliament coming back next week things might change then we have crossed a, we've crossed a boundary there uh one way to solve all of this, Alice, as I put to Chris Bryant, and he sort of seemed to agree with, is call a general election. If you're Boris Johnson, um, the cost of living crisis is only going to get worse, especially in a year when we've, got, when we've got to have a general election anyway. People are going to be feeling the pinch a lot more. Why not, with the state of the polls as they are, say, right, I'm going to put it to the country. The fixed term Parliament Act is no longer a thing. Let's just sort it out. Do you think that would? would I think he'd lose. Actually, I do think Boris Johnson would lose now. I think that partly because um, the country doesn't want to be sprung elections; they don't Mm. like having them when they don't need them. Boris Johnson's gone on and on about how there's a war in Europe and we need to focus on that. The idea that then we'd have a general election in the middle of a war seems even more unnecessary. So I think. 
Yes, but mm. I, th- I do think that they, people would go, why mm. are we doing this? And I think they mm. would then see it as a chance to change. And So he's never going to take that risk because he wants to be mm. in power. He wants to cling on to it. He's... And he does think that every day is a new day and that mm. you know, people will just forget in the end. And even if he didn't all out lose, he's not going to improve on a majority of 80, that's for sure. Mm. So he, he's, it's only going to go one way, isn't it? I don't know why I'm talking um, everyone up to this sort of general election idea. I don't want to sort of talk <laughs> myself into. I don't well, know. I'm sort of talking myself into an outside well, we, broadcast from Pontefract. We love yeah, we love elections in the media. I love I love elections. I'm the, I'm the opposite of that woman from Bristol. Uh, who was it? I can't remember. Brenda. Oh, Brenda. Brenda. Yeah. Beg your pardon. You're I'm, like yes, another one. Yeah, brilliant. I'd have. I'd, I mean, I think I'd have, I'd have to you know get on the road, go to Pontefract. Brilliant. Well, let's move nice on from um, let's move on from <laughs> Boris Johnson and uh, and Rishi Sunak to another um, strange couple, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. They are back in court after all what happened here in the, in Amber Heard in, in sort of Johnny Depp's case mm. against the Sun. Um, they're back in court in the US, Robert, and it's televised this time thanks to the way the US does does things. Yeah, I, I was thinking, I was just reading about this, and there's a very there's a tendency there's a temptation to really treat this as a real good knockabout soap opera mm. celebrities in in crisis fun and i thought i must resist that temptation because these are partly two people's lives and partly it's the allegations are really really serious yeah. uh this is not just her saying that he was uh a bad boy this is saying that he uh she is saying i mean and it's in court so it'll be careful uh, but she's saying that he headbutted her and he threw bottles at her and he insulted her, and he's saying he didn't. And it depends you know, who you're inclined to believe. But either way, it's a really it's a really serious story about domestic violence, and I think it's worth remembering that when uh, when we when there is a tendency to think, oh look, this crazy celebrity world of you know, yeah. uh, it, it's. It's not. I mean, it's entirely possible uh, the court will decide that she was a really quite badly abused woman. And with that in mind, Alice, do you then despair then when you see <clears throat> live shots of what's happening in court, live shots of Amber Heard sitting there having to go through all this again because this is her, him taking her to court? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I don't think either of them are particularly um, you know, sympathetic characters. <laughs> but I do think the issue, as Robert said, of domestic abuse, it is just one that we always hide, that no one talks about enough. That the fact that, you know, two people are killed every week in Britain. I think Alice, Alice was like, yeah. just gave away that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what, take, what I think Alice was going to say is that uh, two women killed by their partners or their ex-partners every yeah. week uh, and... Uh, the, you know the threats to violence violence against women is not is not so much of the stranger lurking down the dark alley it's the husband or the partner or the the jealous mm. ex partner and that is why this is such a uh, this is such a serious business and we can't uh, give in to treating it with levity and yet alice are you back is the line resumed no she hasn't she's vanished All problems in devon <laughs> yeah. and yet Robert, it, it it does make fantastic tabloid copy they are going into details about these uh, drug-fueled binges in australia while he was shooting big movies it is endlessly yeah i mean that in, endlessly fascinating and it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that uh, movie stars got on drug-fueled fuel, binges and if it were just a drug-fueled binge it wouldn't it would be uh it would be entertaining and titillating mm. uh, but it's what he did during the or what he's alleged to have done during the drug-fueled binge that uh, makes it a serious story. Let's move on. Alice, I think you're back uh, on a clearer line. Is that right? 
Yeah, sorry. Perfect. That's all right. Um, tell us about your column. Um, interesting questions about parenting, which you're writing about. Uh, my column was written because I started watching this Japanese program, which is kind of rather extraordinary, um, which is called Old Enough, which is about Japanese children who go to school. They've been doing it for 30 years in Japan. They they will go on an errand, or they'll go to nursery school, or they will go and take their dad his lunch at work, and they cross whole cities age two or three, and they're filmed while they're doing it. And in a way, it's rather sort of amazing because they cross roads and, you know, they, they get onto public transport, and they do it all on their own age three. But at the same time, what you don't realise is there's a whole team helping them to do it. So you look at it and think, you know, we're ridiculous in Britain, the way that we you know, mollycoddle our children and we do everything for them. Um, but actually what the Japanese are saying is that you need to set children up to succeed. So everything about it is done so the child can get to school or get to, you know, get to the shops on their own with the whole community helping. And, and, and what I was trying to say is in Britain, that's what we should start doing, is that we should give children more independence, but we are going to have to help them if we do that. But this sounds absolutely bonkers. So it's, it's actually real. It's a reality <laughs> show. It's not, if anybody is sort of confused about it, it's not a sort of drama or fiction. No, and it's been going on for literally 30 years. It's the most popular programme in Japan. They, it takes them so long to organise. They only do it two or three times a year, but Netflix <laughs> have finally caught on. Uh-huh. And, and for some reason, it is a bit like watching Hansel and Gretel or, <laughs> uh, you know, Little Red Riding Hood. You know there's going to be a, a good ending because they're not going to have something awful happen. But you know, there's one boy I watched who was crossing a five-lane highway at a little balloon oh, yeah. um, just to show who he was. He can't be more than a foot high. But, uh, and... I think the message is that. The message is very strongly is trying to give your children some identity. But my problem was that I did get my sister run over when we were five instead of coming back to school. What? I'm slightly more nervous about doing it with my own children. Well, sorry, your sister was five years old at the time, is that right, did you say? Yeah, we used to come home from school every day on our own. And there we weren't allowed to cross the road, but there was a sweet shop that we always did. Uh, and I remember I, I didn't cross it. She was made to cross it because obviously I knew we couldn't. Across mm-hmm. the road, and she got hit really bad. Do you remember going straight over the top of the car? Oh and then, no! Um, she leg, and we were in hospital. My mother actually went to me first because I was pregnant so badly that I had to stay me because I knew what I'd done was totally uh, wrong. Um, but we did then carry on going to school, but you know, walking there, I didn't encourage my mother not to do it again. I, th- I mean, I think this is it's sort of kind of harking. I mean, this sounds terrifying, this show, for one thing. I mean, harking back to the halcyon days of the 1970s when we were all playing in the street. For one thing, we weren't playing in the street when we were three years old. We might have been when we were eight or nine, but we weren't when we were three. Uh, I mean, I'm just terrified by the idea of my son or daughter going, bringing me my, crossing London to bring me my lunch <laughs> when they were three years old. I mean, that's mad. Uh, I mean, I remember uh, we were pre-seatbelt era, uh, early 70s. I didn't have my seatbelt on. Dad goes around the corner. I fell out the car. Mm. I remember bouncing down, the, bouncing down the road when I was seven or eight years old. And, you know, I don't know what the statistics were for road traffic accidents in the 70s, but I bet they were, I think they were probably three or four times as high bad, as they yeah. are now. Uh, so there were consequences to this golden age of uh, yeah. letting our children uh, out and about. Obviously, it's... You know, it's great to be able to to do that and to not to have the uh, the constraints that children mm. have now. And maybe some parents overdo it, but this is overdoing it way, way, way in the opposite direction. 
just for it's, it's neglect, it's neglect. It's, it's, it's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Poor parents listening to this at home. Um, don't take any advice from these two. Um, yeah. Just finally, tell us about what you were writing about yesterday in your column, Robert, because I, I was shocked, I was shocked and frankly appalled to hear that you weren't listening to Hugo Rifkin on a Saturday morning. That was the, yeah, I, did, I wrote a piece about listening to uh, Morning Live, uh, Saturday Live on the BBC, BBC Radio 4. Oh. and. Yeah, and that's the response I got from my editor when I when I when he read the column. He just sent me an email saying you should have been listening to Times Radio. <laughs> uh, and uh, anyway, I just remarked on the fact it won't come as a surprise to many people that uh, on that program of the five guests, one was educated abroad and the other four all went to boarding school, uh, which even by BBC Radio Four standards, I think is uh, was pushing it a bit. So not even just a private school; they were actual no, boarding schools. No, no, well. all four went to boarding school, of which and one percent of the British population is educated at boarding schools. About six percent private, and one percent is uh, boarding school. So on that basis, if we have five guests, you would have one person from boarding school every twenty episodes. Yeah, uh, and they had four in one morning. Uh, and I just think the BBC was talking a couple of weeks ago about getting uh, people from more working class backgrounds on, and they, yeah. and, and that's obviously they need to, but they also, I mean, they, they need to sort of realise the extent of the problem and the, of uh, that they are giving voice to a fraction of British mm. society rather than uh, a cross section. That was Robert Crampton and Alice Thompson from the Times. Uh, up next, this United Kingdom. 5 any sort of particularly burning things you'd like to say about that from your patch? Anybody? Well, I heard from the leader of Care Home Relatives Scotland today. Then this is a group that, that fought for visiting rights in care homes. And understandably, there's a lot of anger from that group. The leader of that group, Cathy Russell, is basically saying what I would have given in June 2020 for a get together and a sing along with my mother. Yet here we are with people leading the the UK response to the pandemic partying. So there's a lot of anger in mm. that group. Hannah, Hannah, what about you? Because, um, well, we were hearing from um, Ben Hatcher, the Tees um, Valley Mayor, a little bit earlier on on Times Radio, and he was making the case that the Prime Minister should stay. But I guess there might, might be some nervousness amongst some of the, the newer 
Conservative uh, MPs in parts of the north of England. Yes, I mean, this is exactly the point I was going to make. So what we've seen is the vast majority of MPs, um, both sort of uh, more veterans and the 2019 intake coming out in support of the Prime Minister. But I think privately that, you know, there are some nerves. A lot of these MPs in the so-called red wall seats, they turned Conservative for the first time in a long time, um, sort of two years ago and a lot of them have very small majorities and they're you know they're a lot of these MPs are feeling very nervous about what may happen to them come a general election we also had in um court on Monday uh the Wakefield MP who was uh convicted of a sexual assault so the, I, I believe he is appealing that mm. um so we don't know exactly what's going to happen but you know thoughts have already turned to the possibility of a by-election there and I think, yeah. uh, you know, if, if that goes badly for uh, the Conservatives, then a lot of these MPs might not be so supportive of the Prime Minister anymore. Sam, the view from Cardiff. A very similar picture here in Wales, to be honest. Uh, Mark Drakeford has come out and said that both Boris and Rishi should go and uh, is also uh, calling for a general election. He's said that the pair has lost uh, any authority to carry on um and uh essentially um he he's asking them to do the decent thing and in this case he thinks it's a general election peter um for your listeners at u105 is this a, is this a big issue it, it, it is the thing i suppose look is we're in the middle of an election campaign so we have politicians yeah. who are knocking doors and they're getting feedback we have had in the last 24 hours the sdlp and the alliance in northern ireland both calling for for both the Prime Minister and the Chancellor to go. The DUP, who'd be most closely aligned to the Conservatives, have said that it's a matter for the Conservative Party. But essentially, the politicians tell us on the doorsteps the message they're getting is if you make the rules and you break the rules, then the consequence is you go. Mm. Thank you all for that. Um, let's move on to other matters, shall we, and, and other news you can bring us. Um, Hannah, let's start with you. Um, of course, the... Um, the inquiry into, into what happened at the Manchester Arena uh, bombing continues, um, but there's been some interesting news which you want to draw attention to about the the database used by police to, to investigate extremists. Yes, this is an investigation that was um, published this morning, actually by a former colleague of mine, Richard Holmes, at BuzzFeed News, and that was in conjunction with BBC Newsnight. And they've basically um, been speaking to police sources. They've got hold of confidential police emails, and it's thrown up um, some real issues with this National Common Intelligence Application Computer System, which was built as an um, sort of information sharing platform and basically they've spoken to a whistleblower who said you know he flagged concerns about this database um, at the time it was launched said it wasn't sort of fit for purpose and it hadn't uh, you know it, it wasn't functioning correctly but it was still rolled out and it was sort of a gradual rollout but it had been rolled out to greater manchester police mm. before um the arena bomb attack and you know there is uh, this inquiry i don't know how closely your listeners have been following it but it's thrown up um a lot of issues um just with policing with the way the emergency services responded with uh, counter terror all across the board and this is just sort of the latest um shocking one you know it said um that basically uh, 1,300 text messages between Salman Abedi, who was the, the bomber who mm. died in the attack and a known terrorist were not linked to a computer profile of him. Things like um, users could overwrite um, intelligence by accident and that could be lost, that 
um, you know, two people performing the same search would throw up different information. And basically, you know, the questions are now being asked over whether uh, this computer system contributed to the failings that allowed that attack to take place. And do you think after all what we've heard through the inquiry, as you said, about how the emergency services really didn't work well together in conjunction uh, and there were lots of mistakes made. In addition to this, do you think actually when we finally get the the final results of the inquiry, a serious number of heads will roll, do you think? I don't know what the consequences will be, but I think, you know, the the families throughout this have just spoken of their sort of... <laughs> despair and and um you know incredible frustration over um you know what may have been an unnecessary loss of life and mm. um it was pretty patel who ordered the public inquiry so i don't know what she will do with these findings but you would hope that there would be some consequences because it you know it really, it really does appear mm. that that um you know that things should have been done differently um, let's move on to you, Caroline, because you've news via Public Health Scotland about, well, more information, I guess, about what the lockdowns, the, again, the question du jour at the moment, um, did to other parts of, of health services. Yes, absolutely. There was figures out yesterday showing there's been a huge drop in the number of cancers detected at an early stage during the pandemic. Um, I think the figures showed 2,800 fewer cancer diagnoses overall were made in 2020 compared to the previous year, which is a fall of 8%. Um, and this was predicted. I remember interviewing a cancer doctor in September 2020 who said they were already seeing more patients at an advanced stage. Um, so, I mean, it was predicted, but um, this has obviously materialised. Cases of cervical cancer have dropped, have almost halved. Um, and it, that's diagnosis at an early stage. Um, which is really shocking. And there was also significant falls in breast and bowel cancer. Um, I mean, these are obviously cancers that are that are picked up by screening. And a lot of the screening was disrupted during the pandemic. So very worrying. Um, you know, obviously the government was putting out a message that the NHS was very much open for business. But I think if you're if you're one of those yeah. patients, you might not think so. And this, of course, it has been the case in in all the four corners of the UK, really, after after the lockdowns and, and all the restrictions sure. and the rest. But I wonder what you think the the political risk is here for, for the government in Holyrood. Well, I know, absolutely. I mean, we've got local elections coming up. I just, yeah. I just wonder how much these kinds of things are going to impact on the local elections. Um, I mean, that's campaigners describe those figures as absolutely shocking. And it's as you say, it is replicated across... Mm the rest of the UK, but it may well have an impact in, in the elections coming up. Caroline, you mentioned those elections. Um, Peter, of course, elections in all various parts of the, of the UK coming up in May, but arguably nowhere more important than in, than in Northern Ireland. Um, how are things going? Yeah, definitely nowhere more important in our mind than in Northern Ireland. Interestingly, look, it's um, 24 years uh, the weekend passed since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. Mm. Uh, lots of uh, announcements about 25th anniversary conferences, for example. Uh, George Mitchell will be back, Tony Blair, Bertie O'Hearn. But lots of people have been taking that opportunity to reflect. You know, And it's, it, I suppose it feels every year as if we're in another seismic year for Northern Ireland politics. We always seem to take 
you know, two steps forward and one step back, if you like. The feel now is, is this an election that is about the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, which is what the, the unionists are arguing? Is it an election uh, which is about the potential for a referendum on a united Ireland at some point, which is what the unionists are arguing that Sinn Féin are after because they want to get into power both in Belfast and in Dublin? Or is it an election, probably as it should be, on things like our health waiting list? We have a, we have a report called the Bingoa Report a number of years ago, which hasn't been activated, which is to look at, we probably too many hospitals in Northern Ireland and not enough sharing of services but no politicians have been able to get their teeth into it because everybody's caught up in the he said she said and yeah. in, the, in the orange and the green you know we are our waiting lists are the longest in the UK our education sector has got some sparkling results but it's also got a, 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 an area where it's still divided mm. based on religious and there's a big push now for integrated education so the big thing for, for us is seeing well actually you know who will be the number one party in power? Remember the last time the DUP uh, took the first minister position, only by one seat, 28 to 27. All of the polls now are indicating that Sinn Féin will be the main party um, after this election. But again, if Sinn Féin are the main party, we don't know whether the DUP will be willing to go back in as deputy first minister and be seen even symbolically to be subservient to, to Sinn Féin. And we also have the issue of the protocol where regardless of who it is that wins, the DUP are unlikely to go back in yeah. and there's increasing speculation in Northern Ireland from Westminster that Boris Johnson may invoke Article 16 shortly after the result of the Stormont election and, you know, in, in his terms, maybe put it up to Brussels. And that has definitely been the mood music coming out of Number 10, hasn't it, around Article six, um, 16 and triggering that. In terms of the DUP... What is the state of their divisions as we get closer and closer to this election? Yeah, well, we we had um, Jim Wales, long-time member of the DUP, has has, has resigned overnight and, and has backed the candidacy of, of a, another party. Uh, it, there's still the there's still the issues and the factions that were there. I was going to say from Arlene Foster left last year, but from before Arlene Foster left last year, don't forget we had with the DUP had something like like two leaders in something forty plus years in Ian Paisley and Peter Robinson, and then they went through three in fifty days. You know those factions are still there. There's been lots of toing and froing and backstabbing and committee meetings about who exactly to put mm. the, the, the 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 stamp against as the candidate. We now have as of last week. All candidates are declared. We've 239 people standing for, for 90 seats across Northern Ireland. And, and the DUP, you know, they will want to try and hold on to some at least sense of public outward-facing unity in it. But there's no doubt that in the, in, in the meetings, regardless of how many people get elected, that they'll have very different factions. And, you know, whereas other parties maybe have two factions, it feels like the DUP have three or four. And... In terms of uh, the possibility of a Sinn Féin win, as you mentioned it, you also mentioned that there might be issues as to whether the DUP would would, um, would be involved in power sharing then. It has been described as historic. How historic do you think it would be and what other ramifications would, might there flow from there? But definitely historic. Within the lifetime of... So this Assembly should sit for, for, for five years, assuming it starts, and we don't know what date it might start, given where we're at with, with the DUP and with the Northern Ireland Protocol. But... You could have, as well as the history of Northern Ireland, you could, for the very first time on the island of Ireland, have Sinn Féin in power in both Belfast and Dublin. And that will have ramifications. I was, in, I was at an event the other day uh, and Sinn Féin were speaking about, you know, things like the economic policy and, and, and about looking, even without a vote on the United Ireland, one of the things they'll want to look at is to see how can you push an all-island economy? And there are lots of stats, whatever you think about the protocol and about Brexit, to show the trade north and south of the border, for example, is increasing as a result of Brexit. So, you know, in Northern Ireland, the best thing for us is that we're, we're Irish when it suits, we're British when it suits, and we're Northern Irish when it suits. We'd like to see positive trade and positive relations east, west, north, south, any direction mm. at all they'd like to go. 
but it feels as if, you know, when we get one thing working well, um, then something else is disrupted as a result of that, and there's a domino yeah. effect, and that's the, that's the issue. If, if we in Northern Ireland could be at the centre of everything, we'd love it. We'll get to the lulls in a moment, um, but considering the theme of the elections that are happening in various parts of the UK in uh, in May, Sam, of course, local elections are happening in in Wales, having been uh, delayed last year. Um, are there interesting changes? Do you think afoot? Um, well, to be honest, no, I, I don't. I don't think so, uh, really. I mean, at the minute, it's almost like the the local elections have kind of been sidelined uh, by all this Boris Johnson stuff um, and. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, we, we've, like I said, the, the Welsh Conservative leader, he, he's come out actually in support of Boris Johnson um, and has said that he should continue his steadfast leadership in supporting Ukraine. So he should actually continue. So that was mm. sort of a, a contrast in opinion there. But like I said, in, in regards to the local elections, things are, are probably going to look quite similar to, to how they've looked yeah. before. We've dealt with the big news Partygate and the rest. Um, and now we're going to hear some of the light stories, which you can all bring us. Um, Hannah, why don't you start us off? Um, Hannah, if you just tuned in, um, covers the north of England for the Sunday Times. And you're going to tell us about some Doncastrian beetles. Yes, so this is um, basically staff at Doncaster Council have found a collection of 7,000 beetles and a black rhino head that they think at some point were, were borrowed from the Natural History Museum and they'd forgotten to give them back. Um, so and sorry, when found... you say a black rhino head, sorry, black rhino isn't a type of beetle, is it? Do you mean just actually like the no, head of a like, rhino? As in a rhinoceros, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, and these were just kept in sort of wooden crates. They're not in any sort of proper storage and, and they've just been forgotten mm-hmm. about. Um, and so I think Leeds Museum has expressed an interest in the taxidermy rhino head. So I think that's going there. Um, and the uh, the Beatles, I think, are going back to the National uh, Natural History Museum in London. Um, but yeah, they, they basically said that, um, you know, this, this head is quite valuable as well. Um, and they, they said, we, we don't think we can care for these um, longhorn beetle collection, about 7,000 species. Um, and it, it's apparently of sort of international importance. And, and it yeah. was just in an old wooden cabinet. Um, and uh, so, yeah, they, they found those and realised that, that they'd borrowed them and forgotten about them and they're now going to give them back. And brilliantly, I read in the story, classic council response to this, the taxidermy rhino head did have the potential to be a security risk. Yes, yes. I think just because of how valuable rhino horns are and unfortunately there have been, you know, instances of staff being um, sort of threatened mm. in thefts of these. And yeah, they've just had one sitting in a cupboard all this time. Gosh. All right. So from Hannah and her beetles, we're going to go to Caroline and Billy Connolly. Um, what's happening here? I'm not sure I can compete with looted beetles and rhino head, but anyway, this is quite a strange one. An American, everyone loves Billy Connolly, particularly Americans love him as well. Anyway, an American actress is apparently begging Hollywood to cast her as Billy Connolly. I've never heard of her. Her name's Rosa Pascarella, born in Washington. She starred in a film called The Killer Inside Me. I don't know if anyone's heard of it, but she thinks that she bears a striking resemblance to the big yin. Um, obviously, this story is tricky because you can't see the picture of her. But um, have a look at have a look at a picture after this. She's got kind there. of silvery hair, so there's a resemblance there. But um, it's a bit odd. <laughs> okay, hang on. Right, I've got a I've got a picture of, of her up now. Peter's yeah. googling away on his phone. 
Um, Lewis, through the glasses, had a look as well. Lewis's um, argument is, doesn't look anything like him. I'm going to say the same. She's quite a sort of an attractive, petite woman with sort of yeah. silvery blonde, quite straight, shoulder-length hair. That's yeah. not how I'd describe Billy Connolly usually. No. <laughs> Good luck with that. Big question for me is, what does she, she sound like? Well, exactly. Can she do the accent? Yeah, exactly. That's going to be tricky. We need to get her to record. I need somewhere to park my bike and then we can all just take a view. Um, and is there even a film in the offing that she could play him or is she just saying if and when there is a film I, I would like I to? I don't think there's a film in the offing. Although I would argue there should be. But um, yeah, yeah, I think she's just pitching it herself, pitch, putting herself forward. Well, good luck to her. Um, let's, let's move on. Sam in Cardiff, you're going to tell us about um, geese and, well, um, quite aggressive geese. Well, yeah, it was uh, it was a fairly quiet news day in Wales up until I found this story, which is uh, the scoop of the century, uh, one might say, uh, because two geese uh, have been evicted from a canal towpath following aggressive behaviour. Um, but good news, uh, they've been permanently rehomed now. Um, there was some contrast in opinions for this one. We've got the likes of the residents of uh, Cumbran who were saying that the geese were loved by all and that they had done no harm. And then you got the bigwigs, Torvine Council, uh, who, who claimed that these geese had attacked an 86-year-old woman uh, who, who, who had actually fallen trying to escape from, from the geese. So, um, so no, but, but good news is that the geese have now been rehomed. So all, all good here. And are these particularly sort of strong, sort of large geese? I mean, I know the average goose could break a man's arm, but the, are these particularly scary? Oh, I, I think they're they're wrestler geese. I mean, you know, huge geese. Um, well, I mean, you're probably just your average size geese. I mean, to be honest, I mean, the fact that this is actually a story on a publication shocked me. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so, so yeah. But um, in other good news, there there are, there are seven. So, good news for the people of Cumbran mm. is that there are actually seven geese still remaining on the canal. So they haven't got rid of all the geese, but just the aggressive ones. Thank you for that. Um, finally, uh, final light story via Peter. Derry Girls was back uh, last night, I didn't realise. Yeah, last night on Channel 4, and uh, we didn't need a fake Billy Connolly because we had the real Liam Neeson making Ooh. a cameo appearance. So popped up as an RUC inspector who was questioning the, the, the Derry Girls in quite a memorable scene. They managed to turn it around from them being accused of a crime to uh, the RUC being questioned about the number of Catholic officers that they portrayed. But you know, the, the premiere of it happened in the media who saw the premiere of the first two episodes last Thursday night, I think it was. In, in Derry, it was a big event. We're sworn to secrecy, so it was a big surprise to, to well, actually millions of people now when you think how many people are watching yeah. Derry Girls, that Liam Neeson was in it, a real coup for them. Derry Girls itself was featured recently. Lisa McGee, the writer, was a big fan of The Simpsons and she was delighted to see The Simpsons featured an ice cream shop called Derry Girls. Which, it, but it shows you, the big thing for Northern Ireland is it shows you the impact of the series that that can have because Lisa McGee was, if you like, a, a, a test writer and she and other people over the last while as well have been advocating this as another argument as to why Channel 4 should stay probably in the context and in the funding model that it is because of the chances it takes and because of the successes it has with things like Derry Girls because mm. they're adamant that actually Saoirse Monica Jackson, one of the, the, the leads who plays Erin in Derry Girls and Lisa McGee both said last week that they don't think this show would ever have seen the light of day if Channel 4 was structured in the way that Nadine Doris proposes it will be structured going forward. And what about the cultural impact of, of Derry Girls and what it's doing in terms of reframing how we talk about people's views of the of the troubles? Because one of the joys of that programme is 
terrible things are happening in the background and then sitting, wittering around a dining room table, they're talking about how, oh, I was late to school, why? But, oh, because the bridge was closed because of a bomb. Yeah. And it's just sort of jokingly in passing. And it's that, it's that mindset thing. I don't know if you remember at the end of Series 2 when James was going to leave and then came back, that famous line about, well, actually, you know, we're all dairy girls, it's a state of mind and it's nothing to do with your, your gender and it's nothing to do with yeah. where you come from. And that could be expanded into Northern Ireland to say you, you do. And people everywhere all around the world, sadly, have to deal with difficult circumstances and it's how you put a smile on your face and how yeah. you, you still realise and understand what's happening around you, but you still live your life and you still try to get on with what you can while still overcoming the obstacles that are sitting there. And definitely it's a, it's a trait that we've had in Northern Ireland and sadly we had to develop it because the troubles lasted so long might yeah. have been a different story if we'd had if we'd had a two-year conflict, not a thirty-year conflict. Thanks to all the uh, journalists there who took us around the four corners. Um, you can listen live. I'm in all week for Matt from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Times Radio. It is free. It's on your DAB radio and the rest. Um, and if you enjoy this podcast, do subscribe. Um, I'm on Twitter at LukeJones03. I'll be back tomorrow.